At the start of this millennium, Rome was ascendant. Emerging from years of civil war and strife, Augustus, nephew and heir of Julius Caesar, consolidated power and declared himself emperor, son of God, and first citizen. Augustus's newly unified Rome would experience an unprecedented era of peace, wealth, and aggressive territorial expansion. This Roman setting would be the forge upon which many of the West's great religious traditions were shaped and changed. Christianity would be born, Judaism's second temple would be shattered and the people cast abroad into the diaspora, and Greek Platonic philosophy would be incorporated into the thinking of the religious cultures of the age. This is Logos-ish. Today we explore the culture and setting of first century Rome with Dr. Ben Holler. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Logo Fish. This is a religion podcast for basically everyone. Today, we're uh, talking with Associate Classics at Virginia Wesleyan University, Ben Holler. How are you doing, Ben? I'm great. How are you, Brian? Life's pretty great. How's everyone else doing? We're doing great here in Florida. It is raining pretty much on the half hour here near Tampa. So uh, we're trying to stay inside and stay dry, but we'll... uh, we're doing our best. We're doing pretty good. Our dog just woke up from a nap. So if you hear any barking in the background, it's her sort of trying to frantically figure out where we are and trying to figure out why this door is closed in the middle of the house that's never closed. And she might be trying to get the bone that she hid in here as well. She does like to hide things in the office. That is something she does. It's really remarkable how often she hides things. I've been sitting in a room before and seen her walk over to like a pile of dirty clothes and just stick her head straight in and then pull like bones and other various chew toys out of it. And it's, it's a little gross, but also really kind of surprising behavior. So getting to our uh, main guest today, uh, I want to reintroduce Dr. Ben Holler. He's an associate professor of classics at Virginia Wesleyan University. Uh, Dr. Holler was my professor in 2008, and first kind of question is, uh, how did you get here? How did you get into classics? How did you get to Virginia Wesleyan? It's a tale that's 45 years in the making, <laughs> but I can probably do it in about three minutes. You know, I'm, I'm from central Pennsylvania originally, and I, I feel like I grew up in a pretty um, kind of idenic part of the state. And even as a kid, I, I really loved reading J.R.R. Tolkien. I, I loved linguistics. I, I loved things that were old. So I think it was kind of a foreordained conclusion that I was destined to be a professor of classics or, or something in that general sphere of inquiry. I moved to this area when I was about 13 years old. So I actually went to high school very close to where we're sitting right now uh, in Great Bridge High School. And I went to the College of William and Mary for my undergraduate. And I went to the University of Pittsburgh for my PhD. 
So it's it's been sort of a, a a journey that, or maybe a story that wrote itself in a lot of ways. Well, that's awesome. So I uh, invited Dr. Holler to be with us today because as I've studied the Bible, studied Christianity in general, there is no way around the fact that Christianity in its earliest days had interactions with what I'm going to call like the Roman world. It, it was a part of it. And so it really is helpful for people who want to understand Christianity in general to have some idea about what was going on culturally in the Roman Empire. So Dr. Holler, I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah, for sure. I think there are a lot of ways that the study of classics can inform people who are like yourselves, students of religious studies and theology. And I'm I'm sure you guys have probably studied a lot of this yourselves and are probably more expert in a lot of these areas than I am. Um, I'm actually a classicist, a Homerist by training. So Greek epic is really the field that I usually devote most of my time to and the reception of that and later literature. But I think understanding ancient Rome can do a lot for you as a reader of the Bible in a couple of ways. Um, One, I think the cultural context is really important. I think it's important to understand that the New Testament is written at a time when the Roman Empire is undergoing drastic changes. Uh, Up until fairly recently, Rome had been a republic. They'd enjoyed the same form of government that we enjoy in our own country, a representative form of government. And over a period of a couple hundred years, something had become drastically broken in that form of government. And I think we all probably know our Shakespeare is Julius Caesar, and we all know bits and pieces of that tale. But Christ comes onto the scene at a time when Rome has undergone a pretty drastic change. And in 31 BC, with the Battle of Actium, we get Rome's first emperor coming onto the scene. Uh, and suddenly what had been a representative form of government becomes an empire. And we have all sorts of questions arising. Um, one of the titles that Augustus is going to take for himself is Dewey Filius, which means the son of God. <laughs> Uh, And of course, the God that he's referring to is not God Almighty. It's Julius Caesar. Uh, After Caesar dies, he himself is deified by the Roman people. And Augustus has the ability to write this on all of his coins that he sent about the empire as his official propaganda. Uh, But there's a long tradition of this that really, I, I think, has a really important impact on the way that Christ and Christianity is perceived when suddenly you're sitting in town minding your own business and someone comes along and says, hey, I have this wonderful news for you about the Son of God. Um, Somebody hearing that doesn't hear it in a vacuum. They hear it within a political context that to the Romans is actually a little bit scary. Hold on. That's the job title of the emperor. So I think that's one important way that understanding Greek and Roman history can uh, be useful to us. Yeah, I think think Rome in particular is, is pretty radical for any number of reasons in terms of its influence on the Western religious sphere. Because, you know, it in many ways is, was the kingmaker for Christianity, you know, especially when you're thinking about Constantine and the emperors that follow Constantine who begin to craft it into a state religion and stuff like that. And it also had, a Roman rule had profound influences on, on Judaism and a number of other religions too, correct? Absolutely. Um, and there's a long tradition of, of this idea of a ruler cult, too, that goes back before Augustus. The title savior, another really important term that you'll see all throughout the New Testament, is something that goes back to the Ptolemies, the generals who go along with Alexander the Great as he conquers the East. And we have Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, who takes the title Philadelphus, which gives us the city of Philadelphia. But before him, we have his father, Ptolemy, son of Lagus, who actually takes as his official job title. Uh, the title of Soter, Savior, which is the same word that's used for Christ. So the sorts of institutions and the sorts of titles that were really important politically 
suddenly have taken on this whole new religious significance in Christianity that I think for a lot of people, especially Roman governors, it must be a little bit jarring to hear people going around proclaiming a soter and a divi filius. Uh, right. And so as we, you know, progress throughout the Gospels, like this becomes more and more problematic, right? And I know that a lot of Christians at least claim to like want to leave politics out of it, but good luck. Like you can't, can't leave politics out of it. Maybe we should leave partisanship out of it, but in our own context, but we can't deny the fact that even in how Christians referred to Jesus, like, there had political connotations to that, and it ends up getting Jesus killed. Absolutely. And the Romans were really good at making public displays of torture. For sure. And, you know, maybe another interesting topic for us to talk about would be the philosophical baggage, too, that the Roman Empire brings to the table as Christianity is coming onto the scene. At the time that Christ is born, Plato and Platonic philosophy has been around for a long time. Plato is born in the 5th century BC and he lives into the 4th century BC. But at the same time that Christ is born, there's a guy in Alexandria, Egypt, named Philo Judaeus, or Philo of Alexandria, and he goes by both titles, who's writing a commentary on the book of Genesis in which he's trying to reconcile Jewish scripture with Plato's Timaeus, which is his creation myth. And so there really is this really interesting intellectual ferment of sort of synthesis of religious traditions, where people are looking at Hellenism and thinking about how it maps on to traditional Judaism. I think that's something, too, that's lurking in the background of the New Testament, especially if you read the Greek. The book of Hebrews is famous for having all of this platonic language of the heavenly tabernacle versus the earthly tabernacle, the church as it is versus the heavenly form of the church. And a lot of that language actually does come from Plato, who's famous for his metaphor of the cave, which probably most of your listeners will have heard. But in book 10 of the or rather, in the, earlier in the Republic, he tells a story of uh, how all of us are like people who are tied in a cave, staring at shadows on the wall. And as we see those shadows move, we mistake them for reality. But in fact, uh, if we were to turn around and look at the entrance to the cave and look at the real world and at the models that are casting those shadows, uh, we would realize that all that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream, and that the world that we think is real is actually an illusion. The Matrix is maybe a good analogy for that, uh, if we think in cinematic terms. So especially the Republic, where we get that, and then in Book 10 later on, we get this wonderful eschatological myth of the myth of Ur, where Plato takes us on this grand sweeping tour of the afterlife and shows us what happens to us after we die and shows us the punishment of people who have been bad in this life, especially tyrants, in ways that have a specifically Christian resonance, uh, especially the idea that the way that you treat your fellow human beings has an impact on the punishments or the rewards that you receive after death. That's something that sounds sort of like a duh moment to us. Well, of course that would be the case, but go back to Homer and the period that I study, and really what gets you into the good real estate in the afterlife is who you know. <laughs> Menelaus finds out that he's going to go to the good place in the afterlife to Elysium uh, because he's married to the daughter of Zeus, Helen of Troy. So this idea that the way that you treat your fellow man is something that's going to have an impact on your ultimate eschatological fate is something that's been bopping around not so much in the part of the Mediterranean where Christ is going to be born, although maybe there too, but it's something that's a Greek idea people want to engage with. Yeah, and an enormous number of the people who would kind of later shape the faith, you know, I'm thinking about Origen and Augustine and Clement and all of these people were classically trained. Right. Um, or had some kind of deep influence, especially when it came to Plato's philosophy. Origen in particular took a lot of the 
language about illusion and this sort of ideal world that exists apart from our own sort of illusory world from Plato, right? Absolutely. Origen is famous for his Platonic thinking and St. Augustine too. Uh, Most of us are probably familiar with his confessions and this tale of his wasted youth in Carthage and his, his dissolute living before his conversion. But one of the mechanisms that he credits his conversion to is books of Platonists. He, he has this problem with the nature of an immaterial soul. And it's the metaphors like the myth of the cave that really kind of helped him to grapple with that idea. So if I wanted to think like a Platonist from this Roman period, what would be some of the things that I would think as, as just sort of core beliefs or thoughts? Wow. Well, I mean, it depends what kind of Platonist you're talking about. When you go back to the original Plato, we have the metaphors that we already mentioned of the myth of the cave and the myth of Ur. But by the time we get to middle Platonism, things start to change a little bit. And we get a lot of interest in this sort of notion of uh, the first principle of being. By the time we get down to the Neoplatonists and people like Plotinus, uh, we get a lot of interest in articulating hypostases. Uh, there's this idea that the universe is sort of like a gigantic fountain, where there's this almost black hole-like singularity of the one, which in Greek somewhat comically comes out as tohen. <laughs> uh, and this one overflows of its own creative energy and creates nous, the sphere of mind, which overflows and creates psuche or soul, whose job it is to imprint these eternal verities which exist in the mind of God, we might say, in Christian terms, onto matter. Um, So there's this really interesting kind of ontological fountain that powers the cosmos to the point where we might almost wonder whether creation isn't something that happens uh, continuously throughout time rather than something that takes place in illo tempora at the beginning of time. So we begin to experiment with ideas that maybe creation isn't really about something that happened way back when, Maybe there's a sort of continuous energy that sustains the cosmos that comes from a first principle. But it creates an idea of a relationship between human beings and God, the supreme principle of being, which isn't really so alien from Christianity. You might say, well, substituting a number for God seems a little bit like a bummer. Uh, and maybe that's one of the reasons that Christianity is more appealing to a lot of folks. But at the same time, we get a lot of people who bop back and forth between different sects. Uh, If you go to Apuleius and you read his Metamorphoses, we we get a lot of stories of people who will maybe be a follower of Atargatus one day and maybe realize, ah, these guys are all a bunch of charlatans. Maybe I should be a follower of Isis and they'll have an epiphany and be initiated into that cult. And while it seems a little bit indecorous to put Christianity in that category, and while it's certainly a vast oversimplification to do so, there certainly are these folks who are sort of sampling the different platters that are put before them and seeing which one they want to eat from. And it would probably be naive to think they're not remembering what they ate last week when they went down to the Isaic temple or uh, to the Mithraic temple. Yeah, I see that. Often when I talk to specifically younger Christians and when I was a camp counselor, we would all go and essentially sample each other's uh, version of church. And we would have uh, these sort of informal, impromptu conversations generally evaluating our experience and uh, how they either built our beliefs or stoked our curiosity or that we just outright sort of rejected. So it seems like that we are very uh, much ingrained in these patterns over and over again. So it's actually very, very helpful if we engage with these folks from 
a classical age to give us some clues, even if all of the names are very hard to pronounce uh, for a lot of <laughs> our folks who aren't who aren't trained in these ways. So I always love uh, recognizing these patterns in history and bringing them forth to help clarify what we're doing or trying to do today. And I think that part of it is is really just understanding that it's there. It's a part of our tradition, whether we know it's there or not. So when we're talking about whether or not it's an understanding of being, like I'm going to say that most Christians, at least at some point, have thought, oh, there's such a thing as a soul. Well, where did that idea come from? Is that different than like the breath that's described in Genesis, that like God breathes in the breath of life? But is that the same thing? What is it? And so, and we probably haven't thought much beyond that, but it's still a part of our tradition, but it doesn't come from, you know, a Judeo-Christian kind of worldview. It comes from a Greek philosophical worldview. Sure. And, and even the vocabulary that's used, um, a, a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Four Love, Philia, Storge, Agape, Eros, and, and certainly being familiar with those words and the differences between them can make reading the New Testament a little bit more meaningful. What is Agape in the, the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13? That's something that um, studying the Greek can definitely help with. I'm curious, what is sort of your, your favorite part of the classics um, and how that got you to where you were? Like, what was... What was that one text that you can say that started you off on this path? Uh, I'm just curious about that. So favorite text you said? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I mean, for me, it was Plato. I'm sorry. I'm going to back up. For for me, definitely Homer, for sure. The the Odyssey and and to a lesser extent, the Iliad were were for me the text that I fell in love with and the tradition that comes from them. Those are the texts that really kind of spoke to me when I first started out as a student. What about those texts really uh, captured your imagination? Yeah, you know, I think I love the idea of an oral tradition. I I was fascinated by Milman Perry and Albert Lord, his student who studied not just Homer, but went out into the field and studied at that particular time, Serbian poets, uh, people who had a continuous oral tradition that preserved these very, very old legends of battles in a case from the medieval period, and, and looked at how we preserve and transmit knowledge across generations in very traditional and, from our perspective, old-fashioned cultures. My great-grandfather was Pennsylvania Dutch. He was almost (laughs) quasi-Amish. He spoke German until he went to a one-room schoolhouse. (laughs) So I think I was always kind of interested in traditional cultures and, and in oral cultures and how we pass on traditions and knowledge from one generation to the next. So I think my big question, too, is, is, you know, culture is, is a thing that, that is throughout all society. And, and often we tend to neglect the culture of the, the folks who aren't privileged, who don't have access to writing and to the technologies or the positions of power, uh, halls of power that would help to sort of protect their, their cultural memories and ideas. Unless, of course, those are intentionally preserved for a particular sort of academic reason or, or other sort of reason. And so I, I really would like to know a little bit about what it would have been like just being a person in this Roman culture and also, you know, what the difference between being an ordinary person might have been as opposed to being, you know, cousin of the emperor, for example, or somebody of, of great significant, you know, influence or power. Right. I mean, the difference would have been vast for sure. 
And I think that's maybe another area where the church really does provide unique opportunities in, in the first century that maybe other traditions might not have provided, uh, especially for the status of women, for the status of slaves, people who in a lot of ways were completely disenfranchised in everyday secular culture. Things that we think of as pretty normal and take for granted uh, in early Christianity really were kind of revolutionary, um, especially the status granted to women in the church. It's kind of a new thing. Roman marriages were often very political. Uh, often women were married off at a very young age. Often it was an alliance that was determined by their father. Uh, this is something that went in the Greek world as well, where the church originally began to spread. Um, maybe the most famous example, if you read the Homeric hymn to Demeter, which is going way, way, way back to the maybe 600s BC, um, you get the famous story of Persephone, the goddess of the underworld, being married off by her father, Zeus, to her uncle, uh, Hades. And her mother, Demeter, is horribly upset when this happens and isn't let into the, the know at all uh, until she realizes that her daughter is missing. And while this sounds like something primitive and barbaric and horrible, it actually was a pretty common pattern in Greek marriages. Uh, women could even sometimes be forced to divorce a husband in order to marry an uncle purely because of inheritance laws and the fact that that would make it easier for property to be kept within the family. So in that kind of world, a church or a religious sect that offered an opportunity for women to occupy leadership roles, that offered opportunities for spiritual engagement, for spiritual agency, weren't necessarily something that was taken for granted, especially if you think about Roman state religion. Roman religion was a very kind of pro forma thing originally. Um, you had the gods, and they lived up on Mount Olympus, and maybe they were up there in the Temple of Jupiter, Optimus Maximus on the Capitoline Hill. But it was a do ut des religion. The relationship was, I give something in order that you may give it back. And you had certain obligations that you had to fulfill, sacrifices that had to be done, festivities that had to be celebrated. But there wasn't necessarily a huge emphasis on spiritual transformation or personal spiritual agency within that ritual. Sacrifice was a big barbecue. You killed Bessie, you bopped her over the head, and then everybody got to eat a steak for dinner. How cool was that? It was nice, <laughs> civic bonding, but not quite spiritual transformation. You mentioned earlier, we talked a little bit about the roles of women, but you also mentioned enslaved people or uh, slaves. Um, how, can you talk a little bit about the Roman understanding of slavery or what slave would have meant to a Roman society? Uh, for sure, yeah. Um, slavery, maybe the first thing to think about when we think about ancient slavery is it's maybe not what a lot of us have in mind. Slavery was not racially based. It was still every bit as horrible <laughs> as American slavery as, as envisioned here in our country to our shame. But it was something that began with Rome marching out and conquering the people down the street. So it'd be like here where Brian and I live, uh, people in Virginia Beach marching over to the city of Chesapeake and going to war and the people who were taken prisoners would be taken home, and if they weren't ransomed off by their family, they would become slaves. So there were opportunities to gain your freedom as a slave. Uh, you could save a, a sort of nest egg of money called a peculium. Um, you could actually earn money as a slave. But at the same time, all of the things that we think of as being particularly awful and horrific about slavery as we knew it here in this country in the past, 
were there for the Romans. So families were not recognized by Roman law and wives and children could be auctioned off from their fellow family members. All of the awful stuff, um, the, the, the sorts of punishments that could be meted out. One slave was found to be uh, plotting against the master. The entire household of slaves could be executed as a way of discouraging for the revolt. Um, it, it was a brutal institution in every sense of the word. Since you brought up like money things, uh, can we talk about uh, class in Roman society as well, or uh, socioeconomic class specifically, or how that would have played into that society? Yeah, well, well certainly th- there are socioeconomic classes. What we tend to hear most about is the upper classes. So the elites are the senatorial Roman folks who have had members of their family in the Senate. And below that, you have equestrians who are the next property class down. And most of the Roman government was staffed by those folks. Those were the folks who were eligible to be bumped up to high positions like governors of provinces. Below that, though, we had the vast majority of the Roman people, which were laborers, agricultural workers, um, the rest of the, the masses of humanity. Plebeians. Yeah. Right, the plebeians. <laughs> Although that distinction wasn't really as operative by the time we we're talking about, but originally, yeah, the plebeians. And because of this class divide, especially thinking about sort of a, a very small upper echelon of nobility versus everyone else, it, there's a an honor component to this as well, which then translates into religion, right? Absolutely. There's a whole constellation of Roman values that uh, probably are pretty important for the period that we're talking about. So fides, your trustworthiness, your ability to pay back a debt if you owe a debt, uh, the idea that your friends could rely on you to keep your word was certainly important. Auctoritas, uh, again, the sort of nebulous and intangible concept of uh, personal authority, uh, the sense that you were someone who was worthy to be reckoned with. Also a highly patriarchal culture. So patria potestas, originally for the Romans, there's this notion that the father of the household has absolute power of life and death over everyone, literally everyone um, living within that home. So there are eventually, when we get to the 12 tables around 450 BC, this notion that, well, a father should maybe be limited in the number of times he can sell his son into slavery. <laughs> so maybe we'll put the limited three and say, after that, ixnay on the Avery sleigh. Uh, if Junior comes back after that, you've got to take him back. The extent to which Roman society was patriarchal is, is hard to underestimate, even in the period that we're talking about. And I can imagine that would definitely have a deep effect on the metaphors that people used back then, and especially the metaphors people used uh, in terms of religion and storytelling, I imagine the patriarchal qualities of the culture and the focus on trustworthiness and these sorts of things can sort of picture them being not just in in Christian texts but in other texts too within the cultural sphere, whether they be classical poetry or philosophy you know could can you think of some examples of of where that might be the case? Yeah, well, certainly biblical parallels kind of jump to mind too. I mean, the idea of God as a father, why isn't he a mother? Well, part of it does have to do with the structure of your household. You, you look to the father as the authority figure in traditional Roman culture. But yeah, other aspects of, of fathers as authority figures. I mean, c- certainly the idea that the emperor is kind of the father of a household, the father to the Roman Empire is certainly something that I think the Romans probably would have related to as well. And he also has this sort of interesting relationship as well as a god on earth. After Julius Caesar is deified, there's this interesting question of what are we going to do now with this imperial cult? And it seems like for Augustus, at least, it begins in the east in parts of the world that have been conquered by Alexander the Great. 
and by the Ptolemies, where they're kind of used to this idea that, okay, we'll play along, you're a god, whatever, you can have an altar, we'll put some incense on it, everybody will be happy, we know that it's just us paying our fealty to the ruling uh, dynasty. But even at home in Rome, we get people like Horace and his poetry alluding to this idea that maybe the word Deus and the word Augustus are two things that kind of mesh together. So there's this sort of teasing relationship that goes on, especially with the Roman emperors, where it's very un-Roman to say that a man, especially during his life, is a god. It would be laughable to the old-fashioned Romans in the days of Cato to make a claim like that. But here we have Augustus, and it's really convenient for him uh, as he thinks about what's happened to all of his predecessors, to his great uncle, Julius Caesar, and all the other guys who are part of that huge piranha-like feeding frenzy that led up to him becoming the first emperor. It's convenient to think about some way to come up with a symbol for your power. And, and that's one way to do it, to view it as the relationship between a god. And In addition to nomenclature and symbols, was there a mythology that surrounded Augusta? Did, did they put out propaganda about him being a god? Yeah, th there certainly is a mythology that goes with Augustus. Um, you guys probably know the Aeneid, which is the epic of the founding, not of Rome so much, but of the ancestor colony of Rome, uh, a city called Lavinium. Uh, and so it's a story that's been bumping around for a long time. And for someone like myself, who's a Homerist, the part that's kind of fun is it's just one of a lot of different stories. Um, Virgil, the poet who becomes the poet of Augustus's propaganda, it kind of reconciles a lot of different versions. Or maybe Odysseus came to Rome at some point. Maybe Heracles was bumping through there too. Uh, maybe there was a Vander. Maybe there was Aeneas, and he has to consolidate all of these different myths, and he settles on one, which is by that point pretty canonical, uh, that the Trojan War is actually the ancestor of the Roman people, and that there's this vast kind of divine destiny that's led to the foundation of Rome. Uh, even way back when in uh, 1184 BC or whenever the real Trojan War took place, the gods were thinking about the foundation of a Roman empire and they rescued Aeneas from the flames of his own city as he was on the losing side. And Virgil, the poet of Augustus, has to come up with a way of creating a hero out of this guy who really unfortunately lost the war that he was fighting to defend his country. Yeah, so I studied uh, Virgil's Aeneid when I was in AP Latin in high school <laughs> a long time ago. And um, please don't ask me to read any of it again. But it was not in Latin anyway. I'd be glad to read it in English. And it's really interesting about how that kind of propaganda is. It's through all of the books of the Aeneid. It goes from uh, conflicts to uh, political marriages to the dissolution of those political marriages, uh, which is really uh, kind of spicy if anyone's uh, interested in that. But we get to the founding of the city and all of a sudden this colony of former Trojans ends up being like the supporting structure for what becomes what they're trying to claim is like the empire that's going to save the world. Like this is the culture. It seems like from other contemporary sources that like people bought into that pretty pretty good. And in similar ways that we just going to analyze our own culture, like as Americans, we believe that stuff too. And it's prevalent in just how people relate to their own cultures. You know, it seems to me too, that there's a lot of stuff floating around in the, the political culture of Rome that is in some way, shape or form pseudo-religious. I'm thinking about like the Pax Romana and the, the notion of the eternal realm and uh, those sorts of things that are just sort of you know, they, they have this sort of quality to them that require, you know, devotion and buy-in 
from at the very least the elites and the army, <laughs> um, but ideally everybody to make it worth something. And I wonder a little bit if that in some way could create some potential for conflict by demanding that kind of buy-in, especially when you have already such a pluralistic society in the sense of, you know, the, the cult of the gods and these various sorts of figures. One of the things that's interesting about the Aeneid too is that it really taps into a lot of conflicts in contemporary Roman society. So there are two big philosophical schools at this time in Rome. They're the Epicureans and they're the Stoics. The Stoics are all about virtue. They're kind of the traditional, maybe the Republicans in today's political terms, if we wanted to resort to a vast oversimplification. And then you have the Epicureans who are maybe more about pleasure, um, and they're very scientific also. They believe that empiricism, the observation of the world and the way that it works, is the way that we gain knowledge. And a lot of people have read the Aeneid as kind of, in some ways, a conflict between those two ways of looking at the world. Um, are you here to be virtuous and to do virtuous things and to sacrifice your own happiness for the greater good? Or are you here to, in some ways, shepherd your own pleasures in such a way that you can create happiness for yourself and your family? They're not necessarily mutually exclusive aims. They're probably things that all of us probably think about at the same time to a certain extent. Everybody wants to create a happy life for themselves, and everybody feels, hopefully, that they're subordinate to some higher aim. But for Aeneas, we, we get to watch him going through the steps of thinking this through. He falls in love when he's in Carthage in Book 4, and we get this very Epicurean moment in Aeneas's life where his own personal desires conflict pretty strongly with the destiny that he has that's been preordained by Jupiter. And we kind of watch him struggle with this until the big breakup scene where he has to leave Carthage at the end of Book 4. Um, and then we watch him struggle with his men through a lot of different adventures and a lot of different dangers, uh, and ultimately through a war where, again, he has to make decisions of life and death for his men. And again, it becomes complicated. It becomes a morally fraught uh, environment once he's fighting a war against the native peoples who live where he's trying to found a city. And maybe an analogy could be drawn with our own area here in the backwoods of Virginia, where people show up hoping to found a colony, looking for a new life, and oops, there are people here. <laughs> uh, a little bit awkward. Um, what do you do about that? And the Aeneid kind of takes on those issues too, and it's not always easy. The last scene we get of our founding figure of our Roman Empire is, is him executing his enemy on the field of battle while his enemy begs for his life. It, it's not an easy ending, but we, we see him grappling with those issues, which is maybe part of the propaganda for Augustus, or part of what Augustus wants us to be thinking about too. There's a clear, like, concern amongst Christians in the first couple of centuries about how can we participate in the Roman culture, in, in uh, whether it's being a part of the emperor cult, because they, they don't want to, but they're also recognizing they may not get food if they don't. Can we talk a little bit about kind of the culture around like the emperor cult and what would have been a part of that kind of worship? Yeah, we, we sure can. And in fact, kind of ironically, I, I don't have this background for this particular conversation, but for the, you guys who are seeing me on the, the Zoom screen, I actually have the forum at Pompeii behind me. And parts of this space actually are dedicated to the imperial cult. So it's actually a good image 
of one of the ways that you could worship the emperor. There actually is a, an altar probably to Vespasian that you could go and visit here and pay your respects to the emperor and reassure yourself and maybe more importantly, reassure him and the powers that be in. Um, but, but the emperor cult has a lot to it. And I, I sent you guys, before we did this discussion, a copy of some primary documents and probably the most famous instance of the emperor cult is a series of letters that we have between Pliny the Younger, uh, a guy who's uh, the governor of the province of Bithynia in what today would be Turkey, and the Emperor Trajan. And it's a really interesting exchange because it has to do with that problem of what do you do when people aren't playing along and worshiping the emperor, especially if those people are Christians, which the Roman government at that time seems to view as intrinsically opposed to engaging in that activity for reasons that probably most of us can understand. And it's this wonderful model of clemency on the one hand. Trajan says, well, if they just recant, uh, it's fine. <laughs> let them off the hook. Uh, we'll just let them go and, and no hard feelings. But if they refuse to recant, off with their head, let, let them be led away to execution. So it's sort of horrible for us to read today because on the one hand, what, what wonderful clemency to say, all you have to do is offer a little bit of incense to my statue and you're fine. We recognize you as a loyal Roman citizen. Uh, and yet at the same time, we get Pliny giving us a pretty detailed account of his inquiries that he's made. He's actually cross-examined early Christians and it's a fascinating document because it's one of the first times that we hear a Roman pagan who's a member of the elite doing pretty active investigations into what Christianity is all about. And we get all these little echoes of things that we get in later writers like Minutius Felix, where he's saying things like, well, I looked into this meal they say they eat and it's just a regular meal. There's nothing strange about it. And at the time, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But then we look at later authors like Minutius Felix, who says, we well, you know there are all these rumors about us Christians that, in fact, we take a baby and we wrap it up in dough and we beat the baby to death and then we eat that. And that's this whole love feast that everybody's talking about. And maybe we turn over a lamp and there are all sorts of orgiastic things that go on. And maybe that's the agape that everyone is talking about. So, I don't want to be a part of that either. <laughs> right. Yeah. Who wants to be one of those people? So it's interesting that people seem to be aware of these rumors at the time of Pliny's letters. Uh, it gives us a sense of why people were afraid of Christianity, uh, together with this fact that they have their own Dewey Filius, their own son of God, who seems to be intrinsically in competition with the emperor. Uh, right. So, um, you know, the Apostle Paul goes... Uh, makes the claim quite frequently that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you affirm that, like, that's what it means to be a Christian. But that also means that Caesar is not. Um, and, that, and that's going to be a problem. So one thing that popped into my head while you were talking was um, a thought, you know, I'm, I think we're all sort of aware of a certain kind of propaganda that portrays uh, Rome at this time and after as sort of carefree and wishy-washy and uh, amoral in some ways, but but would the folks, especially the folks um, with influence, would they have been more sort of in that stoic category that was focused on sort of certain kinds of virtues and and very like specific behaviors, including like restricting, you know, overeating or sex or marriage or things like that? Do you mean in their heart of hearts or in their propaganda? <laughs> in their propaganda specifically. I mean, you know, everybody across, you know, the history of humanity, you know, behaves with a certain amount of vice. 
Yeah, I, it, a good question. Um, I mean, we, we certainly get a sense, maybe Augustus is, is the best example, I, again, where he's passing a series of laws against adultery. He has this very elaborate and well-developed kind of family values legislation. I might think maybe of the first George Bush, this idea that this is going to be our rallying cry. Uh, we're going to rally around the family. What could possibly go wrong with that? But at the same time, we read his biographers and Suetonius, and we hear about him doing all sorts of awful things. He clearly commits adultery on his wife. The distinction between the public and the private sphere is, is pretty glaring in the case of Augustus. But, but we can also, hopefully not approve of it, but, but we can kind of understand what he's trying to do because he does have this grand utopian social building scheme where he views himself as someone who has a state on his hands that's undergone this drastic decline in this period of horrific civil war. And he's trying to build back a ruling class for the Roman Empire. And, and as despicable and awful as the ways that he chooses to do that is, um, th there is kind of a method to the madness. And it may be another monument to look at if, if you're thinking about Augustus' propaganda and the way that he tries to present himself as a leader would be the Arapacus or the altar of peace. Um, one of the things that he begins airing when he goes to war with Marcus Antonius is his tomb. Uh, Marcus Antonius is this crazy guy who's run off and engaged in all this sort of orgiastic excess in Egypt, this foreign Eastern culture, very scary and non-Roman. Uh, and Augustus has Marcus Antonius' will brought out from the Vestal Virgins and reads it to the Roman people and starts putting out rumors that maybe Marcus Antonius wants to move the capital of the Roman Empire to Egypt. So Augustus is trying to portray himself not just as old-fashioned and a Stoic, but as somebody who's far, firmly invested in Rome. Um, so he builds an altar to Augustan peace and has these wonderful kind of golden age scenes on the sides of it, which kind of tie into some of Virgil's poetry as well. You guys may be familiar with the fourth eclogue where Virgil says, oh, you know, we're going to have a new golden age coming. We're going to have uh, a young boy being born of a virgin. The serpent shall be trodden down. We get this wonderful image, and this is written long before the birth of Christ by Virgil, where we're summing up what the Roman Empire is, an image that's strikingly, strikingly like um, some of the biblical language we get describing Christ. Um, and this is why we get Dante's Inferno in 1300 AD. Dante has read his Virgil and he says, wow, clearly this is a prediction of the birth of Christ. So what better guide for us through the underworld than this propagandistic poet of the Emperor Augustus, who clearly saw um, a vision or, or had some intimation of the coming of Christ. Well, this has been an incredible conversation and um, wow, fascinating. Um, so if somebody is, let's say, like me, not super familiar with the classics and um, was interested in learning more, where would you suggest that people begin? That's a great question. I, I guess it kind of depends what you're interested in and, and how deep you're willing to go down the rabbit hole. I, I think learning the Greek and the Latin is actually a really good place to start because they really do open up a gateway to really understanding what's going on in these texts. Uh, I don't think you can understand the New Testament uh, fully, or and I certainly don't claim to understand it uh, fully myself, but I, I think the key to really understanding the culture of the Greeks and the Romans is the language. But, but you know, there are plenty of good books out there. Mary Beard is one of my favorites, um, from her blog, A Dawn's Life, to the many, many videos that she's put out to her books on the Roman Triumph. There are plenty of good popular texts out there that can sort of shed a little bit of light on these topics as well. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Heller, for joining us today. Before we go, though, you know, one of the things we try to do each week is um, share about the stuff that is giving us life, that is getting us through the day, that is bringing us joy, uh, that we will not be Marie Kondoing out of our house anytime soon. <laughs> 
and I'd like you to ask you that question. Like, like what in your life is, has been a joy lately? Oh, wow. I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty singularly blessed. I, I mean, I have a wonderful son. I, I have a wonderful wife. Um, th- those are definitely my, my sort of first joy and my first happiness. Um, I, I think the fact that I get to read wonderful texts and teach them every day and do research and, and write articles on the things that I love is, is really pretty amazing to me, too. I'm, I'm working on an article on the Homeric came to Hermes. Uh, I'm looking at Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man right now and looking at echoes of the Odyssey and Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Um, finding ways to connect the stuff that I look at that's kind of esoteric and way back when to things that are relevant today is, is one of the things that gives me joy in terms of my professional life. I love that. Uh, if, right now, An Invisible Man is one of my favorite um, novels in American literature. I didn't have the chance to read it until just a couple of years ago, and I kind of felt like I'd missed out on a lot <laughs> just by reading through it. And uh, Sarah can point to a time I'm sure when I was just extraordinarily annoying with talking about how much fun I'd had with it. Garrett, what about you? What are you enjoying this week? Uh, well, since being so uh, kind of noble last week, this week uh, Laurel got a switch and she's been very excited about building her um, animal crossing island. Um, many folks would know what I'm talking about, but uh, I have uh, just logged on, but um, that's always, it's just a, it's just a treat to see my wife who's a professor and has like every moment of her day regimented, uh, just to relax, um, in a real and true sense. So, um, that's giving me life right now, seeing her just enjoy pleasure in such a way. So <laughs> not, not being stoic, if we will. Very Epicurean sentiment. Yeah. Very Epicurean. I really appreciate that. Uh, and my, um, sense of joy is is very, very similar, though much more selfish than yours is. Uh, I am very excited to have received in the mail just over the past week uh, the nerdiest of board games. It is uh, On the Origin of Species, the board game, uh, (laughs) where you play as the intrepid Charles Darwin, hiking, sailing, etc., through the Galapagos, uh, and, and down the coast of South America, trying to discover the secrets of evolution. (laughs) and uh if this does not sound fun to you well i'm very disappointed in you uh for me uh what's given me life right now is that i'm leading a small group as a part of my congregation and we are reading together uh shane claiborne's book jesus for president um which is a uh fantastic look kind of at uh the new testament in general and talking really about like, what do we really want to see in the world uh, as Christians and how that really isn't empire and power. Like that's not what the movement is supposed to be. And it's really refreshing to see people get it. And the best part about it is to see people's eyes open up to be like, oh, my loyalty really hasn't been where it should be. Um, It's been the empire, so. Sure. For me, um, I am doing my doctorate of ministry at Candler and I am taking an Old Testament class right now. So I get to delve back into some of the Hebrew that I learned in seminary. And uh, today we talked about biblical metaphors for anger. And um, I got to feel like a superstar and be reminded of how God having a long nose means that God is short on anger and Moses having a hot nose means that he's going to 
got a hot temper and we talked a lot about the notion of like chesed and loving kindness and steadfast love. And so it's kind of nice when that stuff comes back into your life. Why would having a long nose mean you have a, an extended, very patient temper? Uh, the metaphor is uh, related to like a wick. Yeah. And we still see these kinds of metaphors today in our current language, right? Uh, having a hot temper, um, turning red, having your blood boil, you know, heat and fire are associated with anger still to this day. So I just really love you and need to say that at least once a podcast. I look forward to begrudgingly playing that Darwin game with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's true love right there, folks. It is. We both love board games, but John loves a strategy game and I love like a word game, Balderdash or a Trivial Pursuit, general trivia. Uh, I'm not great at strategy or being competitive for that matter. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys, for listening. It's been a great episode and we had a lot of fun. Maybe we can get Dr. Holler back to talk about some Homeric epics at some point or something along those lines. Uh, Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Hey, guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us to get the word out about all the wonderful stuff that we are working on. And we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Have a great week.